Thanks for checking out this sermon from Christ the King in Carrollton, Georgia, where our goal is to glorify God by making, training, and sending disciples to engage our neighbors and the nations with the gospel of Jesus. If you want to learn more about us, you can find us online at ctkcarrollton.com, or better yet, join us on a Sunday in Carrollton. A, a Bible uh, reading, note taking church, right? That we that we lean in during this time and um, and really fight everything within us that tends to uh, lean more towards distraction um, and really focus our our minds and our energy and our efforts um, as we come together over the course of the next. I don't know, 35, 40, 45 minutes or so. So um, anyway, let me do this. Let's jump right in because we've got, uh, we got quite a bit of ground to cover as we come to the end of this book. Holy cow, man. We are actually getting there. I feel like I've been saying that every week for the past like five weeks, but we're getting closer every week. Okay. So um, we're, we need to grasp that we are coming to the end of a very long journey through the book of Genesis. But as we come into chapter 48, let me review some things that we saw from Genesis 47. Okay. So um, if you weren't here last week, it might be helpful for you to just kind of like lean in and listen to this, okay? Because where we begin in chapter 48 um, could actually be a little bit confusing if you didn't have the background of 47. Because it begins with, in verse 1, after this. And so after this is really like after what, okay? Well, I'm about to give us a little bit of a rundown from 47. What do we see in Genesis 47? What did we discuss last week from this previous chapter? Um, three things, okay? Uh, number one, the generosity of God. We talked a lot last week about how generous God is, his generosity observable through Genesis 47. The generosity of God extended to his people through Pharaoh as they are given the land of Goshen to live and work and trusted with shepherding the royal flock. So not only do they get a piece of property, but they are provided jobs, right? Which is really stellar. And so we see that there in Genesis 47. As we continue, we see God's generosity to the Egyptians through Joseph as the masses are fed and cared for. Who knows how they would have articulated that, but we understand that that's what's going on on this side of things. We look back over the scope of redemptive history. We consider the promises of God to bless those who bless the people of God. Last week we saw Pharaoh blessing uh, blessing the people of God, uh, and we see the people of God in turn blessing Pharaoh, all a result of the Lord's of the Lord's kindness and work. And so blessing, generosity, both side. And then finally, the beginnings of the end for Jacob. The beginnings of the end for Jacob. Okay, so we are in this season of passing, which we're going to talk more about in just a moment for Jacob. We continue that as we come into 48, where we will see front and center the covenant promises of the Lord being reinforced for the people of God. So we talk a lot about the original audience, right? Because we understand that as, um, as Genesis 48 is first penned, there were a people before you and I gathered here, 2019, Carrollton, Georgia, reading this, that there was an original audience, that there was an original people that this is directed towards. And one thing that we realize through Moses's writing here and the people of God's reading is that there is an emphasis on God's covenant promises. They're being emphasized, not only here in our day, but for God's people preparing to take possession of the land that he had promised. What does it mean for God's people in light of God's covenant to live on the fringes of Egyptian society? These are all things that have been reinforced over previous weeks. God is teaching his people about who he is through life. 
which is uh, just kind of the way that he works, isn't it? Right? God teaches us who he is as we experience life. We observe that in these chapters in Genesis. We continue to feel its effects this morning as we talk through blessing and adoption. That's really what we're working through this morning, blessing and adoption from Genesis 48. I want to give you guys a main idea as we kind of begin our time, um, and I'm going to repeat it uh, quickly, and then I'm going to go back and I'm going to say it again. Okay, So I want to communicate the thought, and then I want to give you guys an opportunity to make note of this. What are we going to see from Genesis 48? Here it is, right? While death remains constant, unexpected blessing and adoption secure hope in God's purpose to multiply his people and establish his eternal king. This is what we're seeing from Genesis 48. Death remains constant. While death remains constant, unexpected blessing and adoption. So we're saying something about what we're going to observe in Genesis 48. There is to be blessing extended. Perhaps you caught it as Walt read it through for the first time. There is adoption taking place, but it's an unexpected blessing. It's an unexpected adoption. We learn something about who God is and the way that he blesses and the people that he adopts through Genesis 48. Securing hope. In God's purpose to multiply his people and establish his eternal king. Would it be helpful to give that one more time? Yes. Awesome. If I'm going to encourage you to be note takers, I have to ask the question, right? Here we go. While death remains constant, unexpected blessing and adoption secure hope in God's purpose to multiply his people and establish his eternal king. Genesis 48, two parts. Here we go. Part one, Jacob is in the process of dying. Now it's not until chapter 49 that his actual death is recorded for us. Right? So we've got a, a little bit of waiting that's going to be taking place. But, but everything from his body language at the end of chapter 47, his just leaning forward, his, his limping forward, right, is, uh, is, is intended to communicate this idea, right, that he's in a, a season of passing, the intentionality of his conversation in, in Genesis 48, 49, indicate that he is feeling death closing in. This cloud that brings with it greater comprehension of the consequences of spiritual death now swirling around Jacob. Why is death a thing? Why is Jacob in this season of dying? Well, because we know that death is a consequence of sin. It is a result of sin. Right? Our bodies are, are deteriorating. Our glory, our earthly glory is, is fading All of this helps us to to understand sin's effects on the world and in her people. This sets the stage for this incredible, God-exalting, gospel-informing conversation between Jacob and Joseph in Genesis 48. Verse 1. Having received news of his father's illness, Joseph arrives at Jacob's side with his two half-Egyptian sons. 
And in doing so, he affirms corporate identification with the people of God. Let me explain what's going on here in verse 1 and what we are to gather in light of what we see of Joseph's arrival with his two sons. As the right hand of Pharaoh, Joseph found himself to be the beneficiary of a certain type of lifestyle, correct? Not only that, but because Joseph finds himself of the beneficiary of this lifestyle, his sons, Manasseh, the oldest, and Ephraim, were set to inherit the same type of life. However, by bringing his sons with him, Joseph seems to be saying something very specific. And that is this, that we are the people of God first. Right, We're the people of God first. This is who we are. This is who they are, descendants of Abraham, in this moment, actively practicing faith-inspired downward mobility. Right, While everything earthly seems to be at their disposal, given their position, the arrival of Joseph and his sons to Jacob's side, having heard news that he is ill, seems to indicate for us that they are, are, are willing to, in fact, maybe even eager to, take this, this lower earthly position in order to experience the benefits of a, some type of eternal blessing. They arrive and Jacob recalls for them God's promise that would inspire his actions as the scene unfolds. So this first part is really important. First part, communicating information. Second part, we see this really beautiful action of adoption and blessing, but it is informed by what we read here. Okay, so let's look at verse three. Look with me at verse three. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. So he's telling a story about something that has already taken place. And said to me, verse 4, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Holy cow, this is a big statement that's being made here. Two points that I want us to take away from this particular section. Two points that I want us to take a moment to consider. First, Jacob's exposition of God's character in verse 3. If you're at all confused as to who God is, okay, there is an informing by way of Jacob's exposition. His exposing for us in verse 3 who God is. Have you ever asked that question, who is God? Right, what is God like? What is his nature? What is his character? There's a way in which we are able to perhaps understand this to a greater degree in light of what Joseph, Jacob says here to Joseph. Jacob, Jacob's exposition of God's character in verse 3. That's the first thing we're going to talk about. I'm going to give you them both first, and then we're going to go back. Secondly, we observe from Jacob a slight deviation in his retelling of what we read in Genesis 35, the scene that Jacob is referring to, referring to here, that I see as being informed by his bolstered understanding of God's nature, even at the death, even at the end. 
Jacob's comprehension of God's plan being far beyond his own life. Let's say it this way. Jacob's life has served to shine light on the promise of God earlier. He understands it to a greater degree now, right? It's almost like um, when your parents tell you, hey, there are going to be days like this, right? We know the song. Mama said there'll be days like this, right? We're familiar with this. And you go through days that are difficult and you go, ah, this is what mom was talking about, right? Only then to, at a later season, look back and go, wow, those days are actually dwarfed by some of the difficulty that I'm experiencing now. These are the days that she was talking about, right? There's this, there's this growth in terms of our understanding and comprehension that takes place as we live, Jacob is feeling this, and I think he articulates that for us in the way that he deviates slightly from what we read first in Genesis 35. But let's digress, okay? First, God's character from the mouth of Jacob. Look with me at verse 3. Here we go. Verse 3, and Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty, now that's really important, appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. Why is that important? Well, it says some things about God, which we're going to talk about in just a moment. In fact, it says something very important about God that we're going to talk about in a moment. But, but in saying this, we see a laying of a foundation for a radically surprising blessing that is to take place in just a few moments. Jacob begins with this statement about God. Despite his failing faculties, verse 8, we see that he is in fact unable to see perhaps at all. Despite his drawing to an end of his earthly life, Jacob speaks of God's power in and over creation. He says what? He says God is almighty. Right, That God is almighty, meaning that God possesses all that he needs to do anything that he wants within himself. Let me say that again. Why is this so important? Because we say this every week, right? We affirm the almightiness of God as we lean into and recite together the Apostles' Creed. Before we gathered together this morning, right, in this setting, under the authority of this word, we affirmed the character of God and his almighty nature. God possesses all that he needs to do anything that he wants Within himself. From Jacob's position, there is this belief that God can continue forward, persistent in his plan, regardless of what takes place in Jacob and around Jacob. Let's say it this way from Jacob's position, there is this belief that God cannot and will not be stopped from doing what he purposes to do. God's long game is really stellar. Let's distinguish this God from you and I. All right, think about this. Think about the way that we purpose to do things. I was thinking about the way that Courtney and I purpose to do things. Tomorrow's Labor Day. Happy Labor Day, everyone. Right? Happy Labor Day weekend. Courtney and I are talking about, uh, we were talking earlier in the week about going to, to do something tomorrow, maybe even just the two of us. But as parents with two children, right, our purposing to accomplish a certain task is not entirely dependent upon our desire, okay? Like we can't just desire to do something, the two of us, with two children because they can't take care of themselves as much as Judah might like to think that he can. 
Right? We, can, we can purpose to go out just the two of us, but in order for this to be accomplished, we need to find a, a babysitter. We need to find somebody to take care of them. We can purpose or we can plan, but these are often subject to outside influences. You're familiar with this. You can purpose or plan to do something, and then it comes time to accomplish said task, and what happens? Like it falls apart or like it never gets off the ground, right? It's like a, like a rocket, right? It's like a, a rocket on a launch pad. And you go, okay, this rocket is, is here, right? And all these people have gathered to see it and we are purposing to put it into space. Now you can purpose to do that, but in order for that to, uh, to take place, a lot of things have to go right, don't they? Are you uh, three, two, one? This is what happens, I think, when you launch rockets, right? You three, two, one, you count down and you... you Beep, you push the button and what happens? Like the rocket takes off, right? And it is, it's purposes to go into the air. But what happens if you push the button and nothing happens? <laughs> well, it just sits there, doesn't it? All right, like this is the way that we oftentimes purpose. This is the way that we oftentimes plan. By way of Jacob's articulation of the almightiness of God, we are seeing that God is subject to no outside influence. As he exercises his purpose as he exercises his complete and total power what does that mean well it means it means that he does whatever he wants and because he is god when god does whatever he wants it is good even if we can't fully understand or comprehend it it means that that his power is totally superior to all other powers. Now, I want you to think for a moment about what that means, because you might initially go, yeah, God is more powerful than anyone else. He is more powerful than anything else. And we can say that, and we want to believe that, but we battle believing that at times. Let me give you just a, a, a few things that God is more powerful than, right? And speaking of God's total superiority over, over powers, God being superior over powers of and, and in the world. Regimes, God is more powerful. Dictators, God is more powerful. Presidents, God is more powerful. Kings, God is more powerful. These all stand inferior before our God. Not only that, but whatever you perceive to be superior to God, be that your circumstances, Be that your questions, your doubts. I've got big doubts, right? I've got big doubts that seem to be bigger than God is. Your, your hurts, I've been really hurt. Your skepticism, your fears, your anxieties, maybe even yourself, they are not superior to God. You are not superior to God. But God is superior. What's another way that we can say that? Say it like this. Okay, that God is greater. Right? God is, is greater. He is greater than all of the powers of the world. He is greater than all of the powers in the world. And here is the breathtaking reality of that statement. That it's not even close. It's not even close. God is, is infinitely superior than the powers of in this world, right? God is infinitely superior to our questions and our doubts. He is infinitely superior than our hurts. He is infinitely superior to our skepticism, 
we're seeing by way of Jacob's actions. Right, think back. Ensuring that his body does not rest in Egypt, but would be gathered to his people. Right, calling Joseph to his side. That he has accepted this reality that he will not witness the fullness of God's plan on earth. God can, if he wills, Jacob understands this, extend his life. He could revive his body in the same way that he has in previous chapters revived his spirit. But Jacob now sees, we are now seeing that God's plan is bigger. God's plan is bigger than Jacob. God's plan is bigger than this family. God's plan is bigger than you and I. And yet in his kindness and his compassion, right, he calls us as participants into his work, equipping us, empowering us to come along his side and to follow his lead. From Jacob, we learn that death does not dictate our view of God, but instead God dictates our view of death. We learn that Jacob's earthly existence does not hold the weight of God's purposes, but God does. God's plan persists even through the perishing of his people. Do you see that? God's plan persists even through the perishing of his people. Death does not bring distress to the man of faith. But as we will see through the continuation of this passage, there is opportunity for worship. Not only is there opportunity for worship in light of of this season of passing that's taking place, but there is the practice of worship. It's not just like, oh, well, I could pick up this music stand if I so desired, but there is the action of picking up said music stand. With Jacob's life waning to a close, his understanding of God does not wither, but instead what we find is that it blossoms. We're provided a a glimpse from Jacob of what it looks like to rest in what we know to be true of God in spite of the pain that we might rub up against. Did you get that? Whatever pains, whatever difficulties, whatever trials we rub up against and experience in this life, we get a glimpse from Jacob of what it looks like to rest in what is known to be true of God. Who is God? Jacob says it. He is almighty. I can't see (laughs) <laughs> and the degree to which that is to be communicated only, only continues as we review this passage. My life is drawing to a close. But that does not overthrow. It does not dictate. It does not determine what I know to be true about who God is. There's great encouragement from Genesis 48. Right? For, for those experiencing difficulty, for those experiencing pain, for those familiar with sin's effects on this world, the call here is to look to God. 
Right? The call here is to look to the Almighty One, to trust Him who is faithful to accomplish His purposes in the life of His people and in this world. This is where Jacob finds himself in Genesis 48. Jacob believes this. Right? He, he has faith. The extent of his faith would continue to be exposed even as we transition into verse 4 and Jacob's retelling of God's blessing to him at Luz or maybe as we're a little bit more familiar, Bethel. I want us to look back for a moment at Moses' earlier writing where we see at first this call presented to Jacob Genesis 35, verses 10 and 11. I want us to to look there quickly. Because this is what Jacob is retelling, okay? Jacob is retelling this event, right? I I remember the good days, right? I remember the good old days when this happened. He's retelling this event to his son and to his grandsons as they have come to see him as he sits in bed ill. Verse 10, and God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel and God said to him, I am God almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. Now I want you to understand what what is being said here by way of this, this call, right? Be fruitful and multiply. Who's ever been to a wedding before? Raise your hand. Okay, so if you've ever been at a wedding, and at the end of the wedding, um, the officiant or the pastor says something like this, right? We've already done the rings, and we've already, um, this is like right before, like, the kissing happens, okay? Like, typically, right? Um, And the pastor or the officiant might say something like this, right? May the Lord bless you, and may he keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. Have you ever heard that before? Yes? Raise your hand. Maybe a few of you? Okay. So... What we're seeing in Genesis 35 is something similar to that, right? When, when God says, be fruitful and multiply, he's saying something along these lines. May you be fruitful and multiply. May you be fruitful and, and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. Yet, as we look to Genesis 48... We see this looking more like a statement of what God is to accomplish, his commitment, through this family. As opposed to a may you or be fruitful. In fact, listen to the way that that Jacob retells in verse 4. He says this, it sounds much more like what we see in Genesis 17 where God first extends this covenant promise to Abraham. Listen to what he says. He's retelling. We just read the event that he is retelling. And he says this, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make you a company of peoples and will give you this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Did you catch it? did Did you hear how it sounded a little bit different? We we see this be fruitful and multiply replaced with I will make you fruitful and multiply you. We see this a nation and company of nations shall come from you to I will make you a company of peoples and will give you give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. We see God himself 
being understood as the one who would bring about fruitfulness and blessing and and multiplication, the one who would bring about eternal possession. There's a shift from the land of 3511 to this emphasis on eternal possession. Within this family, not in this lifetime. Why? Well, because Jacob's life is drawing to a, a close. We're talking more here about what is to be accomplished in the scope of redemptive history by God. God is doing this. God is making a people. God is making a people fruitful. God is multiplying a people. God is making a company of people. God is giving this everlasting possession. As heir to the promise of God, Jacob has the right to determine or discern how blessing should be extended. At which point we transition into part two, verse five. Look there with me. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. That's an interesting statement. What does Jacob mean as he, as he claims possession, as he claims ownership over, over these two sons? Essentially, uh, Jacob is saying this, that they will become as, as Reuben and Simeon, no longer seen as grandsons, but as sons, one and sons, two, in essence, replacing Reuben, Reuben and Simeon. As for the other children that Joseph has fathered, they would be his, verse 6, incorporated into the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. Verse 8, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Two things that this could indicate. This is just like Bible nerd out for a moment, okay? Let's just have a conversation about about how neat this particular scene is. This could indicate the degree to which Jacob's eyes have deteriorated. He looks out and he literally says, like, who are these two? Like, who is who here? I can't tell. My eyes are, are, are so bad. I'm either completely blind or things are so fuzzy that I, can't, that I can't distinguish the two boys from one another. He is needing assistance here to differentiate, which would be incredibly ironic, wouldn't it? Considering what we have seen, right, from the life of, of Jacob. Who is Jacob? Man, he's the same one who deceptively stole his older brother's blessing. Why? Well, because his father could not see. And yet now at the end of his life, he, life, he finds himself in this, in this same needy condition. So interesting how the beginning of our life and the end of our life, as though we are not needy on, on all of the years in between, the beginning and end seem to like emphasize this for us, don't they? At the end of our life, right, we, we find ourselves reliant on the kindness and the compassion of those around us, right? Children in many, in many senses, right? Or, or the church to come alongside and to, and to care for. Jacob's vulnerability is being drawn to the surface here. So maybe you can't see, maybe this is just a, a formal element of the adoption process. Either way, we are being set up to witness a beautiful act of faith and worship. Look with me at verse 9. Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. Again, this emphasis on what God is doing. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Verse 10. 
Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near to him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. It sounds a little bit like, um, wow, all this and Jesus too, doesn't it? Right? Like that's the way we kind of say it. That's the way that we understand it, the gifts of God, right, that we are able to um, experience and enjoy together as his people in this world. All of this, friendship, relationship, joy, laughter, and Jesus too. That seems to be a little bit of what, of what Jacob is feeling here at the end. I never expected to see you. And now, like grandsons, I never expected to see you. And yet now I'm, I'm seeing and I'm, 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 I'm feeling God coming about fulfilling his plan and purpose. Verse 12. Then Joseph removed them from his knees and bowed himself with his face to the earth. Jacob consummates his adoption of these two boys, verse 13. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near to him. Now, I want you to get the picture here. Okay, Joseph, understanding what is happening in this moment, positions his sons so that Jacob, given that he is um, either completely blind or near blind, would only have been required to stretch out his hands in order to bestow on these two sons the appropriate blessing. Right, Manasseh, the blessing of the firstborn on Jacob's right and Ephraim, the blessing of the younger, on Jacob's left. But what we find is that in the blessing, right, Jacob does something really interesting. He does one of these. Are you ready for this? <laughs> okay, he, he crosses them. Right? He, he, switches it, he switches it over. He stretches out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who had redeemed me from all evil, bless these boys and let them let my name be carried on. And the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Joseph is a little bit surprised at the way this whole thing is played out. And we see that in verse 17. Look with me there. When Joseph saw his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to, to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Why? Well, because Manasseh has been, has been raised. He's been reared to receive the blessing as firstborn. A lot of energy and effort has gone into preparing Manasseh to step into this role. Only now we find that, that Jacob deems Ephraim the one to become the beneficiary, the blessing of the firstborn. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. Reverse 
Reverse. (laughs) Undo it, right? Like, let's redo this thing. Take it back. Reverse your hands. I know this was kind of confusing. I I brought them forward and I laid it out for you and you just kind of extended your hands. Uh, I don't know why this happened, but, but let's rewind the tape. But his father refused and he said, and this is different. He says, I know my son, I know. What is this different then? Well, this is, this is different than Jacob and Esau, isn't it? Like Jacob comes in and he steals the blessing and Esau comes in after and, 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 and Isaac is confused. And Esau says, well, well give me the blessing. And what, is, what does he say? He says, I can't. Like I've already, I've already extended the blessing. No take backsies, right? That's the kind of the, um, the modern equivalent. Only here, what does Jacob say to Joseph? He says, I know exactly what I'm doing. But I, I know what just happened. I intended this to happen. Maybe not so much did I intend this to happen, but God intended this to happen. And so I'm on board with what God is so intending. He also shall become a people, right? He encourages, he encourages Joseph, who still is, seems to be wrestling with this. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he. The younger brother, gosh, the younger brother that is greater. And his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day saying, by you, Israel will pronounce blessings saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. I came across a commentator this past week who made this really profound, really beautiful statement that draws us into the essence of what's being communicated here. Because here's the deal. There are a lot of details Right? There's a lot of details that would be really fun to like talk about around the table, but there is an essence that we're being driven towards. And he draws this out for us this way. Listen to what he says. He says, we may well ask, why is there so much concern over whether Ephraim or Manasseh was put first? Especially in light of the next chapter, what we'll see next week, in which it is Judah, not Joseph, nor his two sons who receive the preeminent place. The answer is that the issue of preeminence in these texts is meant to address the larger question. Here's the larger question that we're, that we're being encouraged to consider by way of this text here in Genesis 48. Who stands in position to receive God's blessing? Who stands in position to receive God's blessing? Over and over again in this narrative, the answer has been the same. Receiving the blessing that God offers does not rest with one's natural status in the world. It doesn't matter whether you're the older brother or the younger brother. Zero impressed is our Lord. On the contrary, the blessing of God is based solely on what? It's based solely on his grace. The one whom the blessing did not belong has become the heir of the promise. That's the point, right? That's the emphasis. The undeserving brother becomes the recipient 
of the promise. This is the gospel. Listen to what Paul says in his second letter to the Corinthians, beginning in verse 8. He says this, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became what? Poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Right on this side of the cross, we are encouraged to wrestle with this reality that is, that is undeserving, rebellious children. God has, through Christ, elected to extend blessing to the, to the least deserving by way of the most deserving, making himself nothing, <laughs> Right, becoming, a, becoming a curse and taking our place. The, the, the deserved one, right, the, the one who is, who is worthy of eternal reward and, and blessing as a result of his perfect obedience and love of the law of the Lord, steps into our place, the stead of sinners, and absorbs upon himself at the cross the wrath that we deserve so that we might become the blessed, so that we might receive benefit of the promise Who stands in position to receive God's blessing? In and of ourselves, not us. <laughs> right? Not us. Like we don't, we have no, we have no plea but Christ. Right? We have nothing to, to offer but Christ. We can't, we can't live righteous enough lives in order to present ourselves to God in a satisfying way. It is, it is through Christ. Right? It's through the blood of Jesus. That we, that we walk, right? That we are made alive, that we are made presentable, that we are clothed in righteousness so that God might look upon us with pleasure, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I am about to die. If there was any confusion as to, what, as to what Jacob understood about his near future, it's clarified for us here in verse 21. I am about to die, but God will be with you. Right? God will, will, will bury the messenger, but the message will persist. God will be with you and he will bring you again to the land of your fathers. From the hand of Jacob, we observe the passing on of blessing, blessing that is rooted from beginning to end in God's commitment to carry it on. Time after time, there is this question presented. And the question is this, how will the plan of God persist within such an obviously flawed world? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Yesterday, 
Did you guys see the news yesterday? This man in Texas, right, hijacked a mail truck and just drove around shooting people. Did you see this? We see things like this, like on a, on a daily basis, on a weekly basis. And the temptation is to, is to step away and to go, this place is so broken. This place is, is so sinful. This place is so corrupt and, and so hopeless. How in the world, how in the world will the plan of God persist? And the answer is always the same. It's not new here in 2019, right? But it goes all the way back to the beginning. The plan of God persists because God himself carries it along. I think that there is a way in which we ought to feel as we come to the end of this passage. And there's a particular way that we are encouraged to respond I think that God is encouraging his people to respond in a a number of very specific ways. And so I want us to talk about two of those for just a moment. Number one, I think that God wants his people to walk by faith. I think God wants his people to walk by faith. What is happening in terms of the extension of this blessing and the adoption of these two sons undoubtedly produces within Jacob some desire to know more about why things are happening the way that they are. I don't think that Jacob has all of the answers, but I do think that we observe from Jacob this willingness to walk in faith. I think there's an encouragement to to, to walk in faith, understanding that when death comes, we rest in God's power and persistence. I think there's encouragement for for you and I on this side of the cross to consider what we know of the power of the resurrection, that death does not have the final say. And we pass through this life and on into the next, resting in this hope. We walk by faith, not by sight. We see that literally playing itself out here in Genesis chapter 48. We walk by faith and we act in worship. We walk by faith and we, and we act and worship. Believe it or not, Jacob's actions here might best be described as worshipful. How do we know that? Well, because that's what the author to the Hebrews tells us. As they write, beginning, uh, beginning in verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. As blessing is extended to each of the sons, there is this posture of worship. We don't know everything, but we know what we need to. And that is that our, our faith, the object of our faith, is indeed sufficient. And that God is committed to perfecting it in us, each and every one of us who look to and trust in him. Each week, we're closing out with this reality, this truth, this encouragement. Each week, we participate in an act of blessing. From Jesus to his people as we remember his death for the forgiveness of sin. We come to these tables on my right and 
on my left and in the back. We come, under, we come to these tables as undeserving people who are made able through Christ's substitutionary work. We come to these tables and we, and we participate in this act of worship, not because we possess in and of ourselves that which is pleasing and, and makes this something that we might act in, but because we have, have believed in Christ. If you feel undeserving to participate here, consider this an indication of your right wrestling with your sin. The encouragement being to to turn, to trust in Jesus, and to receive his grace. We come corporately to these tables, corporately undeserving. We come corporately to these tables, corporately and individually, resting and relying on the obedience of our better older brother, Jesus. We come to these tables and we remember his death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins in our place. We come to these tables and we celebrate undeserved blessing. And we come to these tables worshipful. We come to these tables repentant. We come to these tables as God's people with great joy. Let's consider these truths as we come. Let's pray together.